This is Urban Tiger Radio, a project supported by CybermouseMultimedia.com, sponsors of our free weekly podcasts. Search for Urban Tiger Radio in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher.com and hit the subscribe button to receive free automatic downloads. Please remember to share and rate our show before you leave. Hi, I'm Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio. This week's story, short story, is entitled To Kill a Wish. Now, this is a story, it's quite a strange one, as you know, most of my stuff's quite strange somehow, somewhere, it's slightly off the edge. I quite enjoy doing that, and I hope you enjoy it, and I, I can tell by the number counts that some of you are enjoying listening to it, actually. So, this is To Kill a Wish. Now, this is a story about erections, loss, fading love, dead dogs, squeaking gates, envy, and Japanese brake parts. Now, before that puts you off, I'd like to mention that this is a story that got me into the winner's anthology of the Fish Prize, an honour I don't think I've ever bettered, and thereby hangs a tale. I was asked to read this story at the Cork Literary Festival, only to be told by Clem Cairns, the organiser, after I'd booked flights, accommodation, etc., in the centre of Cork, bear in mind, Cork is quite a nice place to be, to go out and get drunk where they make Guinness, it's wonderful, and only to find that it was the West Cork Literary Festival, some 60-odd miles away in Bantry. Now, my request for accommodation at the only room left in the town of Bantry Bay was along the lines of, Oh, you wouldn't have really wanted to stay here. Yes, I would. There's a pub next door and they get awful drunk of a Friday. Good. I intend to be one of them. Well, don't bring a car. They sit on them outside if it's not raining. I shall sit on it myself and beat them off with a stick. Oh, all right then. It'll be twenty punt. Will there be just the one of you? No, two. Oh, well. Well, we got there in the end but I never knew it could be so hard to spend money. This story was also chosen to be performed as a play and adapted by myself and performed at the Pomegranate Theatre Chesterfield as part of their new playwrights competition. So sit back and enjoy. To Kill a Wish by Bill Allerton I remember one morning I got out of bed and Marion says, What's that? I say, What? She says, That! And points. I look down. Oh, an erection, I guess. Where'd that come from? She says. Don't know, I say. Maybe it's lost. Maybe it's looking for a young couple next door. Close the door, says Marion. I say, What? Finders? keepers she says and i knew that was the last word marion was an expert on last words she had them catalogued inside her head cross-referenced by levels of exasperation mostly other people's and they would hurt right deep down until you saw that corner of her mouth lift in a half smile that said beat that and of course you couldn't even if you knew where to begin there was a time when i thought I'd like to have the last word, but the problem with last words is they're so damn final, they hang around forever. 
you know, a man should be careful around wishes too. I remember once I wished so hard for that last word that I never heard it come around full circle until it took me from behind like a wolf and pulled me down here in this chair where it could gnaw at these old bones. Especially on Sundays. Sunday was such a good day. They began around 9am with a dark coffee, fresh, not rehashed from Saturday supper, and two thin slices of evenly browned, evenly buttered toast. I never overate on Sundays. Marion always reminded me whether I had enough, and I could still touch my toes even though Sundays it might be easier if they were someone else's. Marion said I should be grateful. Perhaps I am. She said I should be. Perhaps I'll consider it. About time, said Marion. Later, I think. Always later, said Marion. And then I'd look over the car and swear I was going to trade it in for some old junk pile. The thing ran perfectly for years apart from that one time with the rusted brake lines. And what use is a car like that on a Sunday? Marion said it was my fault. She said I'd spent so much of her housekeeping on tools and parts just waiting for it to break down that it took one look at me with the cans and the boxes and the bright gleaming spanners and kept right on running because it was afraid to do anything else. She said the exhaust rattled when the engine stopped. Sounds familiar, I said. Can't think why, said Marion. I go out to the front porch for the paper, and the door has a hinge that's swollen with rust from the rain that strikes that particular corner on the days when it should rain, like bank holidays and Easter and Christmas and New Year, and from the days when it shouldn't, like Mondays and Tuesdays, when folk have to go about the business of just being and living, and when you stop to think about it, it's hard enough having to work for a living without rain getting in the way. I always thought rain should be safe for holidays when there's time to go out and enjoy it for what it is and not hate it for what it stops you doing. Marion would say, don't be so wet. And I'd say, it would be good to be able to plan for an umbrella and to know when to wear a coat. The hinge squeaks in the wind. Oil it, says Marion. I nod. That's what Sundays are for. It'll soon be Monday, says Marion. Oh, I'd say, looking at my watch, still 14 hours, 22 minutes. 21 now, says Marion. Sunday evenings, Marion played bridge. I didn't. It took me 40 years to unlearn bridge to the point where I thought rubbers were something you wore on a Monday or a Tuesday in case it was raining. I'd take the hump for a walk instead. Seemed then like an arrangement that might last forever. Well... It seemed that way, until I learned that nothing lasts forever, I guess, except last words. Marion made up a foursome with Hilda and George, and Henry, who owned the used Ford garage down by the supermarket. I worked at the garage for a time, but Henry and I couldn't work it out any more than when we were kids. Whenever I turned up for work, he'd be outside pumping some fool's hand and lying like a trooper. I've seen folks slam the door and drive away, leaving half of what they bought back there on the road in little brown flakes. I'd shake my head and he'd just shoo me away. I always bought Japanese. I knew why Henry hated me then. 
I had Marion. He kept telling her how good they could be, how good they could be together, if only. If only she didn't have me to look after, he meant. If only she didn't have to spend all of her time tidying up after me, the old man whose spark plug suttered up and gone to that big scrapyard of the past. And how the rest of me won't be too long behind it either. Me, the fool, with a hump in the lawn that he won't put away and let go, and who sits outside in the corner of the yard following the sun with his face like a big old sunflower and wishing for rain on bank holidays when he did his best trade and I swore one day when I hated Henry enough and it was sat inside me like an old kettle hissing and spitting away fit to turn me all sour and inside out. I'd let him have her. She'd be back the next day. I know. Marion said so. Henry dropped Marion off Sunday nights by the gate at about 10.30. As she got out, he'd lean across the seat and wave up at me. He knew I'd be there, watching him. He'd give Marion his most gleaming smile, all chrome and polish and second-hand cars, and somehow always managed to catch her by the elbow or the knee as she climbed out of his porch. He'd shout, just so I could hear him. Night, Marion. Same time next week. Damn fool asked that same question for fifteen years. Marion says, Night, Henry. Around eight. Henry would lean across to wind up the window, shout, See you then, and drop the clutch. He'd get about ten yards before Marion shouts, Hey, Henry! At that point, Henry would shed teeth into the bottom of the gearbox. He'd pull back the ten yards or so and wind down the window. Marion says, Sorry, Henry, it's not important. It'll wait a week, and drops the latch of the porch door behind her. The hinge squeaks. Oil it, Frank, says Marion. Marion came through into the bedroom late one Sunday where I'm still stood at the window watching Henry's one good tail light weave along the roadwork chicane down by the junction. He's a good man, she says. Yeah, perhaps I'll buy a car from him one day. It'll give me something to do Sundays while you're at bridge. You need an interest, says Marion. Got one, I say. Marion dodges around the bed. Had one, she says. Hilda still comes around on Tuesdays. Brings me all sorts of things I don't really need. Thankfully, without George... Don't get me wrong, I don't mind George one little bit. What I object to is George with Hilda, attached by the hand like two school kids. Watching them does something to my insides. I once told Marion, it's Hilda's way of making sure he didn't get lost. And she said, that's why she made a point of never holding mine. But you know, Hilda has one saving grace. It's that look in her eyes. It's George, the damn fool. The damn lucky fool. I felt the change come down, with the leaves late that September, with them laid on the ground, coppering the streets and the grass and the weeds by the humps slowing up, and my time in the chair shortened to just a few minutes. As the sun peeked over the gate through the gap in the wall I'd made by throwing stones at the cats scurrying in the long grass. I was out in the yard when the phone rang. 
Marion was sat in the lounge waiting for Henry to pip the horn of his little red Porsche and whisk her away to Hilda's and George's and that other world from which I'd excluded myself all those years ago. To this day, I don't know how. Marion never said a word, I'll swear to that, but I heard everything that made her the way she was drop like a vase and shatter into bright, soundless pieces. I swear I heard her become silent. It rushed out through the door and into the yard and pushed me up out of the chair into the shade of the lounge where Marion sat with the lights out and the phone buzzing away in her hand and tears in her eyes and the voice of Hilda sounding tinny and lost as if she was stashed away at the back of all the tins in her cupboard. I took the phone from Marion's hand. Hilda, I'll call you back. I sat down beside Marion and took her in my arms. Her eyes brimmed over against my cardigan, soaking the wool twists and threw the holes into my shirt. I held her close and breathed the scent of her shampoo. One of Hilda's. She sobbed gracelessly, racking her breath against my chest and sniffing like nothing I ever heard since... Well, since myself, when I made the hump. It was Henry. They'd found his car spun around and broken all over the bottom of the West Hill. He'd hit a car coming the other way head-on at the curve, out of control and at such a lick of speed that he never stood a chance. Why would anyone like Henry fit rusty old Japanese brake lines to a 68 Porsche, they said. It was way beyond them. Marion seemed to go downhill for quite a while after that. As we'd grown older, I found I'd never cared much about Henry, one way or the other, at least when he was alive. Oh, yeah, I'd watched him, knew what he wanted. But I always thought deep down that all I ever had to do was meet him at the porch one night and fasten my arm around Marion as she got out of the car and give him one of those looks and when he'd shout, See you next Sunday! I'd say, no, Henry. Next Sunday we're going to the theatre. Or maybe we're having friends around. Whatever it was, he'd know what I was really saying. But then come Sunday, Marion would start to twitch and I'd begin to feel that what she really deserved was something more than one old man's jealousy. And I'd begin to remember the sparkle in her eye the way she came in from teasing Henry and had smile and probably offer to ring him myself, and Marion would say, No, I'll do it. You'll only look a fool. And suddenly I realised that a look wouldn't be enough. After Henry died, Sunday shifted its place in the week somehow. It became a day for wishing, a day for catching Marion unawares and forgetting and starting to get ready at seven o'clock, still thinking in some dark recess of her mind that perhaps it was all a bad dream. And Henry would roll up outside and the horn would sound, but then I'd watch as she'd mentally pinch herself before settling down again with the papers and a sigh like all her life being let out like a threadbare cat and no one caring much if it came back in. 
except me. But somehow, she never seemed to notice that. Well, perhaps she was right. But how could I fight the past perfect, hiding back there in what was, where it can't make a mistake or mistime a punch aimed straight at your heart and through that to your head where it keeps bumping away and twisting things, lifting them up and elevating them out of proportion. And I'd look at Marion's face and ask myself over again, how do you kill a wish? Weekdays, Marion tried to talk to me and the words would spill down the old familiar rut into how she missed playing bridge on a Sunday and how, if I tried, if I really tried, I could have learned all over again. But despite the words, there was a silence inside her, as if a part of us had been walled off and the everydayness of her was lost somewhere far behind it in a place where I couldn't reach. And the look on her face told me there was no use trying. I began to lose touch with the hump. I used to spend my Sunday evening sat in the chair in the corner of the yard by the grass and talked to it with my eyes closed and my memories wide open. And we'd romp through January snow or autumn-smelling woods with squirrels and birds clattering at branches with a long stake and chasing acorns and chestnuts breaking smooth and moist under a late sun. And some nights she'd be full-grown and still the pup all at once, and I'd watch with my mind's eye as one grew into the other all over again, and always with a stick in her mouth. But now Marion had this look about her that said she needed holding and talking to, and when I did she'd just sit there quietly in my arms and tremble like the hump tracking rabbits along the burrows of its sleep, until a tear would appear at the corner of her eye. And she'd look at me and smile. She'd shake her head and say, Sorry, Frank. Then she'd get up and go across to the window away from the sun and look out over the street to the side of town that was in shadow and watch the lights coming on street by street until the neon sign on top of the supermarket flickered into life and beside it, down behind the roofs and out of sight, there came the soft glow of lights from the car sales pitch. George and Hilda ran it then. Henry left it to them. It had the best parts store for a hundred miles. They're so pretty, says Marion. Yeah, it's the way they hold hands. Hmm. I was on another track entirely. They're so pretty says Marion. I put my hands on her shoulders, fall forward into the soft glow of moving lights. Sorry, my love. She never moves. They're so pretty, says Marion. I remember Hilda came around, one Tuesday, when it wasn't raining. Marion took her straight through into the bedroom as if her life depended on it. A bare... Hello, Frank, scratched its way under the door and fell limp beside my chair out in the yard. I shouted back over my shoulder, Left-hand thread, barley sugar? Now, Hilda had two of everything, canned, dried, preserved. George was still one of a kind, though he was looking a little wizened of late. Still, he wouldn't starve for a year. 
but all I heard was the soft clomp at the bedroom door behind them. I didn't worry. I knew she'd come out when she was ready and ask, pink or orange, or maybe, how about a little tongue of bat or eye of newt to give it a lift? When they finally did appear, they looked chastened, like kids caught smoking cigarettes that the older kids had bought and were now trying to hold all their insides in and not let it spill out on the ground where there's nothing to hide it. Hilda said, We're going out, Frank. Won't be long. If you get a minute, ring George and tell him that behind the box of dried coriander on the top shelf there's a can or two of something he can heat up for his supper and not to worry about me. I'll be fine. They left. The air rushed in to fill the space like a thunderclap in my mind. Marion hadn't spoken. She came back alone around seven and went straight into the bedroom. I found her stood against the window, the first lights beginning to show across in the east. They're so pretty. I felt her stiffen under my hands, but inside I could feel her crumple and fall until she was nothing but a husk, a shell planted rigid in a glass shore, watching the electric tide wash in and over us until the room was dark and bursting with the rattle and hum of silences that I was afraid to break in case she fell apart under my hands, and how, if she did, I could never fit all the pieces back because... Perhaps I never knew how they really went, and now seemed a little late to be finding out when things like that take a lifetime, not just a few minutes in a darkened room. She turned and placed a hand on my chest. Her eyes were hard and dry in the dark, and for the first time since I remember they held no spark of humour. No light in the corners to show what was under the veil of what she said into the things she really meant. You're not a bad man, Frank, said Marion. I began to watch her, almost out of the corner of my eye, as if she was something that glanced off me and off of my life in a way that set us always moving but in different directions until we bounced back off Hilda or George and times like that I was afraid to look at her because in her eyes I saw myself and the way she looked at me and saw that I wasn't a bad man. Over a period she became leaner and sort of tired looking I noticed her face and hands begin to fold and twist the way a photograph might when it's been thrown on the hot coals, when it's no longer wanted. When the face on it no longer fits your life, and perhaps to keep looking at it only makes you feel uncomfortable. I saw all these things, as if I was stood on a platform watching the trains go by, and every now and then I would recognise a face on one of them as Marion. Marion on a Monday, or a Tuesday when it was raining, and as she got slow and wore that look of dark resignation, I'd look for her on a Sunday, and perhaps I'd find it in the edge of a smile as she watched the TV or sat with Hilda watching the lights and how each time 
That tide came in. It pushed me further and further up the shore and away from all the pain in her face. And every time I tried to stand still and look at it, it washed over me and flooded my brain with yesterdays and other different Marians. I wasn't ignoring her pain, but she wouldn't look and I just couldn't see. After all, I'm not a bad man. By the time the weather turned and the sun came high again across the yard, Marian had grown kind of quiet and inwards, as if she were thinking all the thoughts she knew how and making all of her decisions in a rush that spanned a lifetime. She would sit in the kitchen with the phone limp in her hand and her eyes somewhere off far away and I'd come in from the yard and pick up the phone and listen to the sounds of Hilda rattling tins and pans in another kitchen three miles across town. And I knew that she was only listening to the sounds that life makes when it's ordinary and vital like a yeast rising and not running away and rushing downhill to wind through darkness to oblivion like Henry's car. And I could almost smell the nutmeg and cinnamon from where I stood, and there would be a tear in Marion's eye, and though it had no label, no loyalties, I knew it was for all that had been and not for the change that was coming. That year was the first time the sun didn't clear the tops of the trees across the way. I knew that the trees had grown, but it felt in my heart like the sun itself had been weighted down as it passed across and watched us, me in the yard, Marion by the kitchen window, where the light would catch her and eased the shivering, and it seemed as though her illness had closed the door on summer, capturing something of winter right there inside her where fires and suns never reach. The kind of place, her face says, I've never been. Later on that year, George would take me to the hospital over the other side of town, We'd call in at home and Hilda would put food in front of me and I'd eat in a kind of slow motion, like a picture slowed down and played one frame at a time so that I could eke out this last time for as long as possible. And how I wanted to get everything right and knew I couldn't do that at a rush, but right behind me was Marion pushing me forward into loss and loneliness as if she didn't care and couldn't wait to get there and ignoring all my wishes to stay, and being determined to have the last word. She begged them to let her home. She was hurting so much now, she said, it was all they could do, and if they cared, they'd let her be, and let her be amongst the things she'd spent her life with, the things that knew about her, and how to hold themselves just so when she tried to pick them up. She said that death was a stranger in any house, but if you had to let him in, and a good fire and a soft chair that you knew would fit, was no more than he'd come to expect. It always paid to be polite to company. I remember. I picked her up and laid her into a warm salt bath. 
My eyes filled with tears as I released her, and suddenly she was full again, the insistence of all those last words and teased arrogance pushing her skin out to where it used to be, before the world pushed it in and shredded it into the wrinkles under my hands. I dried my eyes, then dropped in the heater. After those first few moments, I watched her soften, and unfurl like a dry autumn leaf in the clear cool. She'd opened her eyes and floated free and away from me, and the look in them said forever, I know, Frank, you're not a bad man. She'd known that day. I'd had to make her know. I'd held a hand and wished I could say all those things that you think of at odd times, like when you're in the shower, or the sound of a sports car scratches an itch from out of the past, and the feeling sort of floods through you, and you think, the very next time, I'm going to say that, and when I do, she'll have to understand, and even after all this time, she'll know that it never went away, but somewhere along, it just sort of glanced off and became dislodged into a place around a corner out of sight, but my eyes filled and my throat became solid like the bowl of an old gnarled wishing tree, and all I could do was make choking sounds and shake my head from side to side as the tears ran into my mouth and filled it with the taste of bitterness. She looked up at me and said, I know, Frank, I know. You're not a bad man. The garden needs weeding. The border's afraid like these here cuffs. Hey, Marion? Hmm. Oh, well. She would have been home soon. And then when she came, it'd be, Frank, look at this, and Frank, look at that, and where should it be, and why do I bother? And then the door would slam, and she'd be gone again until who knows when, and then... Just like the tide, she'd storm back up the beach and rattle and push at the shingle of my thoughts and bits of possessions scattered around just the way I liked them. And for God's sake, why shouldn't I? Oh, I don't know. Where was I? The weeds. Oh, yeah. The weeds. They've run amok, especially the corner by the azaleas where it looks as though the cats have been burying or scurrying or something. Where's the streamer? Marian would have known. Come on, Frank, she would have said. You were doing something only last Tuesday, or was it Thursday? Oh, what the hell? Nothing seems to matter any more since Marian. Ah, there it is. No plug. Come on, Frank, where's the plug? On the heater. Where's the heater? In the bathroom? Still? Marion would have known. The hump looks larger now the weeds have been cut down. I can sit here and throw stones at the cats, or I can go back inside until the sun hits this spot by the chair again tomorrow. Doesn't seem right to go about moving the chair after it's been in this place for so long. I would hate it to resent me. I look over to the hump 
and I remember how it used to be still sometimes, and not even let you know that it was listening until you moved one foot out of place, and how just under its surface ran something wilder and hot through its veins that even now pushes up through the soil and grows weeds like a body has never seen. And it held all that closed like a flower, just so that we could be together. And when it thought no one was looking, it would share it with me and show it to me in all those little ways with sticks and smells and looks. And most of all, I wish Marion would come back now. And she'd say, What are you doing by that fool dog's grave again when the rest of the garden's gone to hell? And if you'd really cared, you'd never have let me talk you into putting it down in the first place, would you? And I'd say, Hey, Marion. Don't shout at me. I'm not a bad man. Just look at the time. She'd have been here real soon. You'd maybe have given her another minute or two, that's all. Or listened out for my brother's car if it was Sunday. It was a Porsche. You couldn't miss it. on the rails and you will find that without fail vibrations from the engine room they're gonna get you home safe soon well that's all for this week's show folks I hope you enjoyed your free podcast from Urban Tiger Radio and if you've hit that subscribe button you'll be hearing from us again in a week's time so it's a goodbye from me and a from Nelly goodbye the keeps the f-